1990 World Cup in Italy. We still go on about it in England, mainly because it was the last time we did anything on the world stage. But it created lots of memories too. Well, here's a free kick for Cameroon. Up goes. Chipped in and volleyed in, and it's there by David Platt. England have done it. But what was it like to be there? Author Pete Davis has the answer. His book, All Played Out, isn't just a definitive book on the tournament. It's also often described as one of the greatest books ever about sport. We spoke about it in this podcast. When I was writing it, obviously I had no way of knowing how the story would pan out. Um, I'm immensely grateful for what's happened with it over the years. Uh, I think of myself as a very fortunate man to have had the opportunity to write that book and that it worked out as it did. Obviously, um, far more important things happened uh, for far more important people than me. Uh, or me writing a book, but, you know, as a sort of lucky side effect, I got to have a truly fantastic year, and I got to have uh, an exceptional story take place around me, and to be able to write it, um, you know, live, pretty much. And it was incredibly good fortune, because actually, uh, it was a tremendously brave piece of publishing, by Tom Weldon, was my publisher at William Heinemann, where when he commissioned the book, A, no one published books about football at that time, other than, you know, ghosted hack autobiographies. Um, and B, England hadn't qualified and quite likely might not have done. So he might have been commissioning a book about the... World Cup in Italy 1990, at which England might not have been. Do you know what, I actually remember sitting down at home, I think you might have spoken about this before, but watching the game in Poland, we needed a point to qualify, and Peter yeah. Shilton had an amazing game. Yeah, Shilton had an amazing game, and there was that one rocket from 20-odd yards out, uh, I don't remember the name of the player that hit the crossbar, and I was sat there thinking, you know, please God let England go to the World Cup, but please God let England go to the World Cup, otherwise I don't know what book I'm going to write. Ball <laughs> <laughs> over yet here. And that's not a bad guy. He came off the crossbar. Shilton beaten for the first time and he came... I imagine the FA were quite nervous about the idea. I'm not really that sure how conscious the FA were of my existence at all, to be honest. And I didn't have that. Their view on it was really simple. If Bobby's all right with it, then we're all right with it. It's his team. It's his squad. You know, you you do as you wish to do, and he will either let you do it or not. And he did let me do it because over time he came to trust me. And I hope the end product um, repays that trust. You know, 28 years on, I do feel that it, it does in as much as it's my best stab at an honest account and 
Robson was a, a truly decent man who it was a pleasure to be around, and I think that he comes out of the book that way. You know, I went to the away game in Sweden and I went to the away game in Poland, and I was at uh, earlier games in, in in Wembley, and so he didn't know who I was, and he was he he, he realised that I was about up and running. Um, but the first, you know, we had spoken a number of different occasions, a number of different places. But the first formal interview was late in 89, I think it was November. And he said he would give me an hour at Lancaster Gate. Um, and so we sat down and started talking. And two and a half hours later, we were still talking. Uh, because once he got going on football, the bottom line is he just absolutely loved it so much um, that he couldn't stop talking about it if he was given the opportunity. And, he, and it was a delight to listen to him because he had a lot of really interesting stuff to say. And um, he was very generous. Um, but in another way, I mean, he was just enjoying himself. He couldn't stop once he started talking and he was getting questions that provoked his interest. You know, there weren't sort of daily tabloid type questions about what's the news tomorrow it's like you know looking at the bigger picture um he got talking and after two and a half hours we were still going and he said i've got to go to this game in uh at crystal palace so I get in the car and we'll carry on so i went from uh, lancaster gate down to crystal palace with him and we watched the game and that was interesting as well, obviously, always to sit with him and watch what he was watching, to see what he pointed out, to see what uh, his thoughts were, and, you know, like the wider picture of what being an England manager involves, which um, people don't often think about. And um, along the way, during that, you know, like that huge amount of conversation, at some point he told me I could drop Lineker. And again, if you cast your mind back to late 89, with England starting to prepare to have a go at the World Cup in Italy, the notion that you would drop the country's leading goal scorer and theoretically, you know, number one pick, of course, Lenica's going to play up front, the notion that you might drop him would have been a sensational headline. And... Robson said that and immediately caught himself, oh God, you know, that's not for the papers, is it? Because he knew what impact it would have. I love the fact he, he asked you. I mean, uh, I guess you could have made a, a, fair, a fair few quid I, on yeah, that. Yeah, he, he put some vast sum of money on, on what I could have sold that for. You know, I, I never bothered to... I didn't, didn't occur to me because that wasn't what I was there for. No. You know, I was there to write a book and I uh, reassured him that, you know, nothing that anybody said to me would ever show up in a newspaper the next day. Um, everything that went on was going to be for the book and that when it was all over, I would produce that book. So you passed so, the test? I guess. I don't know whether it was consciously... I don't think it was consciously <laughs> a test on his part, but it was just an occasion where he realised that something he'd said could have been a huge noise in in the tabloids. And, you know, because it wasn't what I was there to do, I obviously never said anything about it to, and it never appeared in the tabloids. 
And he just thought, right, I can trust this guy. The book wasn't necessarily going to be uh, about an England story to the extent that it became. That happened because the England story turned out to be so good. But there was still a big idea that we had, you know, my, myself, my agent, and my publisher, we, we talked about it a lot. And we felt that the time was right for a good book about football. And if it had turned out that there wasn't an England story, the book would still have got written because so many of us care so much about football. And I'd ask everyone to remember, which it's hard to do, it's hard to imagine, that the perception of football in 1989, when I started work on that book, was utterly, utterly different to what it is today. Um, I always wanted to write a book for fans because I felt that we, as a, as a group, as a huge section, section of the population, were not understood or appreciated. You know, the, the basic idea, understandably, was that football fans were violent, illiterate morons and there was no point in publishing a book about football because people who like football couldn't read you know so to, to write a book that represented a proper three-dimensional view of the full spectrum of what it involves you know to be a football fan and, and all the different kinds of people that love and care about football um that that was always going to be the case anyway plus it was a cultural thing you know there was a very simple question at the heart of the book, which is why this sport more than any other? Yes. What is it about this game that so many hundreds of millions of people become so absolutely absorbed in this game for four weeks? You know, there's nothing comparable to it. You know, the Olympics is a great thing but football is just that one sport and everybody's there with it why is that then your team represented you not just in a sort of like two-dimensional way but in a kind of you know your team plays the way that you are as a, as a, as a people as a nation as a group of people and that was like really distinct around you know the, the image of England, unjust perhaps, but going into the tournament, sort of oafish yeoman, you know, like this hoofy, long ball thump game, and they're all stalwart and big-hearted and brave, and oh, lacking skill a little bit, you know. Yeah. And you know, Brazil play Brazil like they do because they're Brazil, and they're like, well, what does that actually mean? You know, is it stereotyping or is there truth in it? You know, to like investigate that. You know, the whole, this sounds like a crazy, daft thing to say, but, you know, the whole meaning of football. Why is the world going to stop for so many people for four weeks when we kick off in Milan, Argentina, Cameroon? Why is everything going to stop for so many people to pay attention to that for four weeks? You know, why do we love it so much? One by Massing. Right, Lineker, Benzie! In Italy, 
they're all stuck in each other's pockets, all different characters, say something like Paul Gascoigne or Gary Lineker, stuck in each other's pockets. There must be quite a strange mood. I mean, they're not on a holiday, they'd have to do a job. What did you... What yeah, did I can't remember who said it. It was like being in a five-star prison camp. <laughs> um, but, you know, Robson wouldn't have any of that. As far as he was concerned, you know, it's that classic quote. I mean, he was so <laughs> British bulldog. You know, what are you complaining about? Four weeks. They were away four years in the war. Or whatever the quote is. You know, just like, you can't complain. You know, you really can't complain. You're getting paid to do a job that very few people can do. That very few people could even dream of getting to where you are. You're at a World Cup playing football, representing your country. What's not to love? Were any, were any of the squad wary of you, wary of you at all? Um, the two Nottingham Forest players, Pierce and... Des Walker? Walker, were exceedingly wary because that's what they had picked up from Clough at Forest. You know, don't talk to the, to the press, period. Don't talk to anybody. You know, no one talks to the press except for me, Brian Clough. And they came from their club with that, which, you know, well, if that's the way Clough wanted to run things, um, fine. So Walker and Pierce were uh, noticeably close-lipped. And what about um, in terms of being more open? Who was, who was perhaps the most open with you, do you think? Uh, I would say Lineker and Waddle and Butcher and John Barnes uh, off the top of my head. Those are the, the names that, those were the guys. I mean, Lineker is obviously a bright guy and thoughtful guy and canny, you know, very wise for his years at that time in being honest but without giving too much away. Uh, so he was interesting um, to be around uh, and, and just obviously just a nice guy. What you see is what you get. Um, Waddle was a delight very very interesting indeed to hear him talking about a game and he was unafraid to do so um, had a lot of insight um, very clear ideas a pleasure to be around and a nice sense of humour with it um, he was a good guy John Barnes was the most uh, horizontal human being I've ever met in my life so <laughs> laid back it's ridiculous yeah. but also bright and interesting uh, and Terry Butcher was just a very different sort of character, you know, like very much like the public image, but straight up, straight up, honest, honest as it gets, and absolutely prepared to say his piece. And um, I, you know, I spoke with, you know, I don't know if you can tell from the book, I spoke with lots of them on different occasions, yeah. many times, and the picture of them is like I hope three-dimensional people, like as accurate as you can do it, is built up through the book, you know, because of being around them and watching them work and play over, you know, the best part of a year, uh, more, in a way, I think, given when I started. But, you know, personally being around them for a year, and, and more and more so as the year went on. Um, you know, and I look back, I think, I mean, you know, 28 years on that, I, I, for some reason it occurred to me yesterday, how many times did Paul Gascoigne say no comment to me? 
looking back, I think about that. I think because you know, in the nicest possible way, it's almost pointless interviewing him because you know anything could get said, anything could happen. Um, he's more fun to be around and to observe at that time, you know, just to let him be himself. I can imagine, yeah, if you got the but tape recorder out, he might get a bit. Right. He just he said no comment. I mean, media training, shall we put this uh, gently, was in its infancy. I think media training, if it existed at all, was to advise someone like Paul Gascoigne, don't say anything. That was it. So, bless him. I mean, of course he said loads, but when you're around and, and he's comfortable because other people are comfortable. But he's, he, he was a person who sort of operated in his own mind anyway, a unique character. But when actually directly facing a question, he'd just say no comment and it became a joke. You know, how many times have you said no comment? And often times you think, well, because he can't think of anything else to say, bless him. Anything? <laughs> because I never speak. Uh, my name is Paul Gascoigne. Hello, Germany. How are you? Sorry, I never speak to And Robson was good at keeping people, you know, like, focused without stressing them out. And he, you know, they, they loved him, actually. You know, they they took the piss because he was forgetful and he got names wrong and he had his, you know, particular quirks and foibles, you know. But um, they would have run through walls for him because they knew that as far as it was possible for him to do it, he would take the flak and he would protect them. He had this amazing access. You could talk to Bobby Robson and the players. There must have been a... A big temptation for it to be a behind-the-scenes story, but the book's much more than that, isn't it? How did you manage to not get bogged down in just a book about, you know, Gaz's adventures in, in Italy? Um, it would be very presumptuous on my part to overplay the relationship that I had with the players. I got on well with some of them that I came to know better and to talk with at greater length. Um, and I did see a few of them afterwards when it was all over and the book was out. Um, but, you know, I'm not ever going to, like, say that access some, somehow qualifies me as a friend of this or that person. I was a guy doing a job, and that was how I understood it. And, of course, the England squad and their tremendous story at Italia 90 became a huge part of the story but it wasn't the whole story and it had to be set in context and it was very important that I wasn't just focused on a group of players in a hotel having a game in a hotel playing a game in a hotel it was, it was more than that what was it like for the fans that was um, really, really important. And what was it like for the fans? Because today, I mean, mostly, there's been some isolated incidents of hooliganism over the last couple of years, but mostly it's a safe experience. What was mm. it like watching England then, particularly in the tournament? It could be rough. Um, again, we forget what it was like. You know, putting us onto Cagliari was an absolutely conscious decision to corral England fans for the first three games on an island in one place where they could be heavily policed 
in the hope that we would then fail to progress after the first round and that our dreadful fans would go home. What was lovely and important about Italia 90 was that over time the perspective changed. Not all England fans are that. You know, that must have been nice to fans, feel that, yeah. You know, that, came, that started coming through. Hang on a minute. Absolutely innocent people who just want to enjoy themselves, watch their team playing football, do no harm, mix in with the locals, enjoy the local culture, be on holiday. You know, the beginnings of the idea that a tournament should be a festival outside the stadium for everyone connected with it, that was just beginning to happen at Italia 90. And I think a more three-dimensional view of, of fans in general started to come out of the tournament. And a lot of really good things started to come out of the tournament. But ultimately, more important by a million miles than anything else at all is that the Taylor Report came out. The success in Italy made the game more attractive and fashionable, and the game became safe. Didn't happen overnight, but today, to take your kids to a game of football with you, you know, there isn't a second thought about it because it's safe, and that matters more than anything else. It doesn't matter what I think about players' wages. It doesn't matter what I think about FIFA corruption. It doesn't matter about a whole lot of other things compared to the fact that it's safe. People shouldn't die going to football games. No, and, and you're right. I mean, even the late 80s, um, the idea of taking kids to a game, you, you, I remember being that age, and uh, yeah, your parents would definitely think twice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was it was it was tough and it was rough and uh, it shouldn't have been. And bad people had way too much influence on what it felt like. And I look back on some of the games that I went to and think, you know, these days, you know, what the hell was I playing at? But I was a young man, you know, so I would go along and then I'd find myself mixed up in stuff that I didn't want to be mixed up in. Yeah. Um, and for England fans following England in Italy, it was. Sometimes it was really, it was a trial. You know, it was tough. Um, you know, I remember the atmosphere uh, before the semi-final arriving in Turin and thinking, you know, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be hairy. Uh, you know, they're waiting for us. You sense that? Um, and it was very important for the book to, to try and understand the full spectrum of the fans' experience. But you can look back at Italia 90 and see that the seeds were being sown there for how to manage that stuff better. And, you know, God willing, the rest of uh, the Russian World Cup now will play out, whatever happens to England, without any of that stuff happening on the streets. You know, and, the, and, and that consciousness, that concept of, it, of, of the thing should be a festival that includes the stadiums but goes far beyond them into the streets and the cities. I think is is understood much better now. You know, it's it's laying on a, a a much bigger, more inclusive, more encompassing event that allows people to not just arrive and go to football and and you know what wonder where you're going to sleep because that's what it was like in Cagliari. You know, how how am I going to get back to the campsite? So what, what what obstacles would there be getting back to just being stopped by police or oh just just. You know, people, you know, I, 
people wanting to fight you. Because you're English. It's not, you know, there's some awful people travelling who claim claiming to be England followers, but there's some pretty unpleasant people waiting to meet with them. Yeah. And you're thinking, I don't want to be mixed up in this. And and they've put the game on at such and such a time and told us we've all got to sleep at this campsite way out there. But then they haven't laid on buses after public transport's quit for us to get back to that campsite after the game's finished. So where are we going to sleep? See, that's, that's, you know, well, that's I know, I, know, I was yeah. fortunate. I could, I could step away from that because I had a B&B because I'd been to Calgary before the tournament and obviously set things up for myself. Uh, but I was able to do that because I was working. But I did very consciously make that effort as, as much as I possibly could. Yeah, I had access to the England Hotel and could ring up such and such a player and say, can I pop in and have a chat? Or, you know, just wander in and see who's around. But when I was done with that, I was out, back out, travelling like a fan and experience. I was, I had it like three ways. You couldn't ask for it to be a richer experience. I had access to the players that journalists didn't have, but I had a press pass so I could get in and out of stadiums and press conferences and what have you whenever I needed to. But I travelled like a fan, you know. And, and you I, met I, so I many there. I mean, did, did, I'm guessing most of them had a good experience. I hope so. I think so. You know, it, it it felt like it paid off in the end. Um, you know, the noise that a large number of England fans made in the Stadio degli Alpi in Turin was substantial and uplifting, and it did feel like something really good came out of it in more ways than just the team. Um, but along the way, there were some people who had some tough times. You know, people who got deported for absolutely no reason. People who got uh, beaten up by police, um, and, you, and in a way, you can't blame the police because they were sort of taught to expect yes. hooliganism, and the police were in a condition of, of hooligan psychosis. Uh, you know, and, and certainly, God knows, in, the English government didn't help. Um, basically, giving the impression to the Italian hosts that every single English person travelling to the tournament was a hooligan. Uh, excuse me, that's me you're talking about. No, I'm not. But um, they didn't help. And when Thatcher said that uh, she thought the English team shouldn't go to Italia 90, you know, that's you look back at that, that's breathtaking. That's absolutely breathtaking. And, of course, unimaginable today. Yes. This is right. Now it's Parker. Oh, we're appealing for offside. The Germans and they're in trouble. Alcantara couldn't do it. Lineker probably could. And he's under the equalise. It's Gary Lineker. The ace marksman keeps England in the World Cup. Delicious. The semi-final was it. That was absolutely it. You know, I was supposed to be writing a book about the World Cup, but I knew that there was no point, period, no point going to the final. Oh, really? Yeah, I knew it. Um, for that book, that story, you know, the way that it was when I walked out of that stadium after we'd lost that penalty shootout, and the way that it was the next morning 
you know, because you've got to remember, Italy were also defeated in the semi-finals. Yes, yes. So you could say that the third place game in Bari between England and Italy was as much the final. It was the last time that the West Germany team were playing as West Germany. You know, the Berlin Wall had come down. That team was hugely popular in Germany. You know, we probably underrate them, but they were a magnificent team. Um, and I felt that they would win it. You know, Argentina were extraordinary. You know, they always are, aren't they? It's a semi-final. And you're, oh, you're I, an England fan. I mean, how how was that as an experience actually being? I don't know how many fans England had there off the top of my head. I, can, I can't speak to how any other fan felt at that time, of course, because each person will have their own memory of it. Uh, obviously, for me, it was exceptionally intense because I had been following that story and that team for a long time by then. And I had, of course, become very involved in, in it. And all my books tend to be intense. Um, I want the reader to feel that they're right there, um, you know, in the story, with the story. Um, and for me, it was absolutely heartbreaking. That means that England have to score the next one to stay in it. Would you want to be Chris Waddle now, or even Stuart Pearce? Because you, you, know, you, you were still a grown, you were still a grown man. You've seen England before. I mean, I remember watching it as a, as a kid. I think I did cry. Actually, I know I did cry. Oh, I, I even, cried. Even yeah, as an adult, I mean, you had I been like thirty. I was thirty and I cried. Yeah. But you were really taken. It was, it was a roller coaster for you. As a yeah, fan. it was. It was everything about it. You know, with hindsight, I, I am. I'll say it again. I'm an exceptionally fortunate man, and it was a wonderful amazing experience and I'm very very grateful for it I look back on that and in some ways you know it's 28 years ago it's a completely different universe but my personal experience of it once you get me going on it, it, I, it I remember it like it was yesterday um, I remember what it felt like to sit in the stand there watching that penalty go over and Mateus consoling Waddle and the look on Bobby Robson's face and this just crushing disappointment to have come so far to have got so close there was no doubt in the English camp's mind that if they could get through that semi-final then they could defeat Argentina and win the World Cup no doubt in their minds that they could do that here that the right two teams are not in this final. What, what's your view on that? Completely agree, Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Argentina uh, are lucky to be here. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That, that would be my opinion. Lucky against uh, Brazil. Lucky against uh, a 10-man Yugoslavia. Uh, Germany, of course, have played very well all the way through. They've been the most impressive team in the tournament from start to finish. All right, uh, it could have gone either way against us. 
but they did play well against us anyway. And but for two missed kicks, we might have been in the in the final. But you can say that if they win it today, then they have been worthy winners. It sounds, it sounds sort of your, your experience in some ways quite exhausting, sort of oh, an over, yes. over the shoulder. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I went to twelve games in six cities in twenty-seven days while writing that book, and then went home and wrote the book in fifty-eight days flat. Um, Never, you know, never mind the writing afterwards. I mean, the the experience was, yeah, I was really shattered by the end. Did it, I can't did it remember hit how you? many overnight train rides I've done and how many plane flights and whatever. It was shattering. But that was part of it. You know, it was like it added to the to the zest and the atmosphere. It's like, come on, drag your carcass down one more road. And then... Obviously, you're exhausted, you're heartbroken, but no time to dwell on that too much. You've got the book to write, and you mentioned you did it in pretty much 58 days straight. I mean, that sounds pretty intense in itself. I mean, how, how long are stretches were you writing for every day? All day, every day. Get up, write, keep going. What sort of, what, sort of early, early start? Yep, sleep, eat, repeat. I'm guessing it was on Old Fashioned Well on the, on the type. It was on an Amstrad. On an Amstrad? <laughs> Alan yeah. Sugarwood, please, yeah. Yeah, hilarious. It was so antique now that I look back on it. But bless, you know, it was it was novel technology at the time. Some friends yeah. of mine had, had bought it as a wedding present. My first two novels had been uh, written on, you know, pen and paper and, and a battered old Remington portable typewriter uh, to begin with. So 58 um, days, you, you, you must have had just tons of notes and... I did. Stacks and stacks of notebooks, stacks and stacks of... Uh, you know, those little mini cassettes that you used to record interview on. Um, absolutely tons of material. Obviously, I had a bunch of stuff already written that was from the pre-tournament experience, you know, so yes. accounts of different players at their clubs, interviews with different players that I'd done before the tournament, uh, accounts of... Uh, qualifying games in Sweden and Poland, accounts of um, friendlies in the run-up to the tournament. A lot of the material was pre-existed in, in either notebooks or some of it was written up. But obviously it all had to be glued together and it had to happen really fast because, again, technology was not as quick then as it is now. Yes. And the objective, of course, for all concerned, was to get the book into the shops as soon as was humanly possible which meant that every two or three days another chapter went off in the post to William Heinemann, where my editor was editing as I was writing. And uh, we finally got a text that was ready for the printer. As I say, I finished the last chapter in 58 days, and then there was... You know, the last bit of editing off to the printer, proofreading, copyreading, thing got out of the shops at the beginning of November. It was for the time it was fast, yes. That was fast and you so you have been with the team and you've had the idea, the publisher have got on board in nineteen eighty nine. You you've won the trust of Bobby Robson and the players, you've gone to the tournament, it's been an up and down experience with the, the hooganism and the police, you've watched all the games, you've seen the semi final, heartbreak, then you write the book in fifty eight days, then it's over. You've posted it off. You must have felt a bit I don't know, maybe yeah, a bit lost that, or empty. I, yeah, I always felt um, I've always felt uh, a, a kind of hollowness at the end of every game, yeah. every every book. I'm sorry, at the end of every book that I've that I've written, because all my books 
are written with intensity and with passion, and that, you know, that ended up not being very healthy for me. Um, I didn't realise at the time, but in, but as it, uh, as it turned out, uh, in the 1990s, after it all played out, I wrote eight more books, which is quite prolific, and it absolutely wiped me out. Um, it absolutely flattened me. It burnt me out, and it got to a point by 2001, 2002, that I was gone, I was shot. Um, I could not write a sentence, never mind another book. Uh, and I became extremely ill. Um, I en ended up being told by my doctor that if things went on as they were, he gave me two years to live. Um, so, it was quite serious. And again, I'm a really lucky guy because obviously I'm still here and we're having this pleasant conversation. So, I'm, you know, I'm around. How lucky am I? But what happened was that as I started mending, uh, a big part of starting to get better was accepting that I, did, that I would not be writing again. You know, that I had had 11 books published, that I had had some absolutely amazing and extraordinary place experiences in amazing and extraordinary places with amazing and extraordinary people. You know, yes, the World Cup, but I also flew into the eye of a hurricane repeatedly, for example. You know, I've been to some very dramatic and exciting places and seen some pretty amazing things. And I could, look, I could start to look back on it and say, what a lucky guy. And I had a fantastic time, and I wrote all those different books about all those different things, and it wouldn't be happening again. And that was all right. You know, I came to accept it. Uh, was it hard I, to accept, though? It was, it was fantastically difficult to accept at first. Yes, I, I really wrestled with it. It was very painful. But over time, I came to accept that it was okay. You know, not many people get to be fortunate enough to have 11 books published, and I did. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal, and I left it. So when the writing came back, which it did in mid-2016, when I started writing again, uh, that was the most unexpected thing. No one was more surprised than me. Uh, you know, it was 15 years since I'd written anything. And to find myself writing a novel, as it turned out, was well, exhilarating. Absolutely exhilarating and very surprising, but nice, very nice. So what? So what, I've got a novel out. What? What? So you're back. You're back. And but what? What advice would you have for 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 authors? Maybe uh, doing do the it. same thing, jumping from one project to another. Is it? Is there? Just, just do it. You know, if you believe in it, do it. I can't tell anyone else how to write a book. It's not. I don't have that. It would be presumptuous. Um, you know, look at the people whose books you like, maybe. See what they've done. But just do it. You know, if you, if you have something you want to write down, then write it down. See what it looks like. That's great. That's and great. Don't, don't give up. And you're, and you're back writing now? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, 15,000 words into the next one. Um, well, that's, that's a lovely story in itself, isn't it? Well, I'm a very lucky guy. I've said it before, and it's the truth. And I'm, I'm obviously very, very happy about it. And it would be nice if people uh, enjoy the new novel, which um, 
on the evidence so far people have done. They've said that it's very funny and very moving, so that's good. Um, it's quite different. Um, but then, you know, my experience over the past 15, 25 years, you know, things do change. And then and, and, and following that and coming out the other side of it, and you find yourself thinking, well, I might want to say a little word about that. And so you do. And if it entertains people, so be so be it. I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for the responses that I've had. Um, and I will, God willing, give them the chance, uh, you know, press on with the next one. Um, it's not easy. But um, I would be careful about making the story about me because I, in the end, you know, I'm just I'm just a bloke, you know, I'm a, I'm just a lucky bloke, and I certainly wouldn't want to be wandering around with big banners saying Pete Davis is back because in the year 2018 it would be an entirely legitimate response for a lot of people to say, well, who the hell is Pete Davis, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh, but if yeah. you know, if you want, if you want to read a slightly different novel, it's called Playlist, and it's on Amazon. What can I say? Very nice uh, being on social media and seeing how many people have um, got memories of all played out from whenever they've read it over the past years. You know, some people that are older like me and that read it at the time, and other people that have come across it since. It's fantastic how nice people's responses to it, and very heartwarming, very encouraging. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of younger guys. I see it. if you Google like best football books, it's always in the top, you know, the top five. Whether it's yeah, one it's nice, three. and you think, you know, that maybe that person that's saying that wasn't, you know, born in nineteen. Yeah, well, yeah, quite possibly. A lot of these guys, yeah, definitely, which so is sweet. a really nice legacy, isn't it? Yeah, nice, very lucky guy. I'd just like to thank Pete for taking a moment to speak to me. If you haven't already read or played out, then I urge you to do so. It's readily available online. And his 2017 novel, Playlist, is also readily available. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>